good versus evil is the single most common trope of narrative storytelling ever. You ever thought about that? That idea of good versus evil is everywhere. It pervades all literature, all film, even the likes of performance theater and, and video gaming. Every medium contains this theme of good versus evil. Even uh, the narratives that purposely attempt to show us that good versus evil doesn't actually exist, and, and they try to uh, define morality as ambiguous or, or not necessarily black and white, find themselves defining that gray, moral, ambiguous world as a contrast to good and evil as we know it. Good versus evil. You know, growing up, I was influenced by this kind of storytelling. So many of the storybooks and, 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 uh, and stuff that I took in as a kid had this theme. One memorable story was uh, the story of King Arthur and, and his round table of knights. Anybody ever hear those stories growing up? Um, or for me, I watched a play that my parents were in called Camelot, which is super interesting, telling the story of King Arthur and Lancelot and, uh, and their kind of feud that happened. They fought evil powers, evil sorceresses, and Lancelot even fought an evil dragon, right, to save the damsel in distress. Very classic look at good versus evil. Or what about this one, The Hobbit? Anybody ever uh, read The Hobbit? A fan of Tolkien out there? A few of you, very good. It's one of my, uh, one of my favorite stories. It's, it's, it's well, it is well written, right? And um, basically, the way that Tolkien describes these different characters, Bilbo and Gandalf and, and even the dragon Smog, they are embodiments of good or evil, right? And, and they also have these twists in their characters that make them feel alive as he's written them. Or maybe one of my favorites, uh, I'm sure many of you have experienced these guys, the Super Mario Brothers, right? Anybody out there? Yes, a few of you? Um, how, how much more classic good versus evil can you get than these stories that date back to, to 1985, right? Uh, ever, ever since the release of the first game, you could argue that maybe it's a little bit of a flat story. There's not much going on there. But the line is clearly drawn. These guys are good. These guys are evil. Let me explain it a little better. Uh, there's a reptile in the story named, anybody know this guy's name? Uh, where's he at? Come on. Where, there he is. Bowser, right? What happens? Reptile steals the damsel, right? The damsel calls for the help of the knight, in this case, a plumber, right? And uh, the plumber brothers defeat said reptile and, and save the damsel, often through unreasonable odds, right? And they win not only the life of the damsel, but her heart along the way, right? Classic good versus evil. And all of these stories are timeless and fun. And, and most stories that I didn't mention fit this same trope of there's a good power and an evil power. And we seem to, most of the time, get behind the power of good. Now, why is that? Wouldn't you think if we were being repackaged the same story time after time among every kind of story that we take in, from every kind of medium, don't you think it would stop being interesting? Don't you think that kind of storytelling, 
this basically the same principle, just in different terms, would get stale. Wouldn't we prefer stories about people that are more like us, you know, self-destructive, self-centered, sinful, fallen? You would think. Well, what if, what if this good versus evil is so pervasive because it's pointing at a deeper truth? What if it's pointing at a truth that frames out the entirety of our existence? Um, what if absolute good and evil resonate so well with us, us humans, right? Because of the story of Jesus. Because of the story of Jesus. Tony, uh, he did an amazing job last week, and he talked about the victorious Jesus. His uh, salvation that he paid for for us is victory. Jesus defeated Satan, right? Jesus also has defeated our sin. Amen? Jesus has defeated our sin, and he is victorious. And so I'm going to read, I'm gonna read a, a, um, a passage this morning that kind of shows that in even a different light, but I think it's every bit as powerful as the imagery that we were talking about last week. Check this out. In uh, Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1, um, and y'all hang with me. We're going to read through this together today, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy it, but stick with me. It is in Revelation, so the the symbolism here is so eye-catching. All right, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the, ab- the agony of giving birth. And then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, with seven crowns on his heads, and his tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky. He threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, and the dragon was ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. The woman gave birth to a son who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod, and and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for for 1,260 days. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle. Somebody say amen. (laughs) And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser, that is the Satan, of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth and the one who accuses them, he's the one who accuses them before our God day and night, but they have defeated him. 
by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives uh, so much that they were afraid to die. This piece of literature is from the book of Revelation. This is written by John the Beloved, also known as John the Disciple. He was one of the people that was with Jesus. And he wrote this book called The Revelation. Um, and, and it is what we would call apocalyptic literature. Did you know that apocalypse actually doesn't refer to the end of the world? Apocalypse actually refers to something being revealed, right? And so this revelatory work from John is about the end of the world. But, hang with me, it is also revealing the nature of the world from way back when and right now. And what will be, that's right. Yes, it's a vision of things to come, but it's also a beautiful image of some things that have already happened. And here we get to the passage that I read, and what does it read like? Did anybody catch on to it? Reptile trying to destroy a damsel and her child. We're not talking about Mario anymore. This is the truth of our universe. There is a symbol here that is telling us about a deeper truth that underlays the cosmos, right? And, and yet, in the middle of this story of good and evil, the angels boom out across the heavens. It has come at last salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. And we get this amazing image. The serpent has been thrown down. By who? By God. The serpent has been thrown down by God, and even believers have defeated him. You see, this is a passage about victory. Amen? It doesn't say the word victory, but this is an image of a victorious battle where God throws the serpent down and the believers defeat him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. Amen? We are victorious because of the, the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all. Uh, and, and we are able to defeat the accuser now. Amen. To walk in victory. Amen. But the question remains, how? how? How do we do that? To catch you up, if you haven't uh, been in this series with us yet, I want to show you just a graphic that will kind of help you uh, remember where we've been. So first off, we started week one, our great salvation, looking at salvation as rescue. Salvation as rescue from things that are danger to us. Uh, one of the most common dangers that we ended up talking about that day was the danger of ourself, <laughs> of our self-centeredness, of our sin. Um, salvation is rescue from that. Salvation the next week was uh, salvation from our debt. And Victor uh, put it so, so beautifully. We'll talk about it more here in a minute. And then week three, we talked about salvation as victory. Victory over the Satan, victory over uh, the power of death, victory over sin. Today, we are not um, necessarily going forward, but we're going to talk about how. All right? So we've talked about salvation is victory. And now how do we, as believers, walk in that victory? And then next week, we will jump into our final topic, salvation as, and you'll have to stay tuned to see what that final remark is going to be. But today, we're talking about how. How do we actually walk in this victory that we discussed last week? Now, we would all say, I think, that Jesus defeated our sin and that he reigns victorious 
And like the scripture we just read tells us, um, he even gives us victory over the enemy of our lives. But how? How do we go about this and how do we walk out a victorious life? A brief reminder of something that all the presenters have talked about, and uh, that is Genesis 3. You heard Tony laugh about it last week that every one of us is going to quote this. And I'm not going to quote it, but I'm going to remind it to you, remind you of it and bring it to your mind. Um, Genesis 3, you get this story of Adam and Eve and the first sin. Adam and Eve sinned. And I love the way that Pastor Victor said it a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here, he said something like this. They stole something that was God's. And now there was a debt. They stole something that was God's and now there was a debt. And at the end of that chapter three, what does God have to do? He sacrifices an animal to make skins for Adam and Eve because there was a debt that had to be paid and their guilt had to be covered. In this case, literally by clothes. So this began a millennia-long tradition of animal sacrifice for our sins. It was codified in Levitical law, right? And, and yet, as, as Pastor Victor presented a couple weeks ago, that was really only the minimum payment due on the debt. Does that make sense? We were never canceling anything. We were, we were merely trying to stay up to date on the interest of our sin, the interest of our debt, right? But... Victory was eventually won. And debt was paid in full. When, when did that moment happen, you guys? Do you remember? It happened here at the cross. You know, Romans 3.23 is, is often quoted as a scripture about how we've all sinned. And therefore we've fallen and we're in need of a savior. But do you know what comes right after that? I want to read it for you. Romans 3.23. Check this out with me. Uh, for everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard, right? But keep reading. Yet God, <laughs> in his grace, he freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. When? When did this happen, right? God presented Jesus as what? As the sacrifice for our sin. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. People are now made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, when they believe, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right when they believe in Jesus. Somebody say amen. That's, that's the story of our salvation. So when did it happen? It happened at the cross. He made sinners and that's us. In the scripture there, it's meant to be understood that it is, it is us. Right. He made us right in his sight. His blood shed as a sacrifice. 
and the blood of the Lamb. And we are made right when we put our belief and our faith in Him. Salvation by faith alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. So this catches us back up to where we started today. And, and that is uh, in, in Revelation chapter 12. I mentioned earlier that this is a prophetic work that is also rife with symbolism and parallels um, to things that have already happened or are currently happening. And so what I want to do is I want to look at it again and, and this time break it down a little bit for you, help you digest a little bit of where I'm coming from, what I feel like the Lord has shown me in, in Revelation 12. So verse 1, I witness in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. This woman is basically, in all the symbols that you can read here, Israel. This woman is, is representative of the children of God, which literally means Israel, but also could apply to us. She was pregnant in the pains of labor, and I believe that that detail was included to recall to our memory the punishment for original sin. Why would she be in the pain of labor? Well, because she is part of the fallen, sinful human race. I believe that this is saying that in a way, she's like us. It's not saying that she's living in constant sin. It's just saying that she's part of humanity. Verse 3 and 4 refers to this dragon, and this may be the easiest symbol to interpret in this chapter. I witnessed another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. And then the next verse, his tail swept away one-third of the, the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it came. Obviously, this is who? This is the Satan, right? And, and he is the accuser of the saints. He's the enemy of God. And, and one of the giveaways is his tail sweeping away one-third of the stars. Anybody know what a star is a common symbol for in the scripture? Angels. He swept away a third of the angels when he fell from heaven, when he was thrown from heaven. I think it's interesting, too, that this verse shows the dragon at enmity with who? With the woman. With the woman. What? Wouldn't you think evil would be facing ultimate good? But here's the thing. <laughs> Not with God. I believe the dragon knows it would be no contest with the father of creation. But with the woman, maybe he stands a chance. With the woman... Perhaps there is an opportunity here for him to win some victories. And so he stood ready to devour the baby. And the baby, of course, is talked about in the next verse, verse 5. Uh, she gave birth to a son, and he was to rule all the nations with an iron rod, right? And, and, and her child was snatched away from the dragon. That's, that means it's protected from the dragon. It was caught up to God and to the throne. 
Verse six, the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her to stay uh, for, for 1,260 days. Now, I wanna say first and foremost that this is like, there is so much in here that we can't get into. Uh, for instance, the, the dragon sitting ready to devour the baby. Do you realize that the Satan had plans all through history to keep Jesus from becoming Messiah, to keep him from going to that cross? Even before Jesus was born using different rulers, he had plans in place to keep the baby because he knew, he knew what that baby meant for his future. But God protected the baby. The baby was, was caught up to heaven and that obviously represents Jesus's ascension. He, he came and then he ascended to God, right? And, and, and then it says the woman during this time fled to the wilderness. And, and this indicates, again, where else do we see Israel in the wilderness? It's during the rebellion. It's after Egypt, before the promised land, when there was a lot of time wasted not listening to the Lord. This isn't necessarily um, just historical though. The, the rebellion of history is a motif that exists both historically and contemporarily, it, it's happened again and again and again. And, and while it is mostly historical here, it's, it's to show that the woman um, is not steadfast necessarily in trusting, in, trusting in, this, in Jesus. Verse seven through nine is mostly history. Uh, and, and this is the part that's so, it reads like a, like a war movie, right? Um, there was a war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And we can visualize this, right? The dragon lost the battle and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. And the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or, or Satan was uh, the one deceiving the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. God and the angels cast Satan to the earth. And then, verse 10 and 11, it has come at last. Our series title, right? Salvation. A loud voice booms across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. And then we get to the kind of the crux of today. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth the one accuses them before uh, God day and night in verse 11. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb, by their testimony. And they did not love their life so much that they were, that they were afraid to die. Here's, here's the thing, you guys, that I'm, I'm getting to here. The accuser has been cast down. And now the people of God, we can defeat him. We can defeat him. We can walk in victory. And to answer that question of how that we've been pondering so far is this. Here's how. By the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. What's the blood of the lamb? Well, it's his sacrifice. It's what he did for us on the cross. And, and, and what's their testimony? Well, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Now, the closing statement here at the end of that verse um, is they didn't love their lives so much that they were afraid to lose them. It's, it's, a, it's a message of humility. It's a message of they took the blood of the lamb and their testimony, and they held those 
higher and stronger than all of their selfish priorities. The blood of the lamb and their testimony became more meaningful and more important to them than the things that felt good, than the things that they wanted with their flesh. Does that make sense? Okay, so how does this relate to us today? Obviously, I've pointed out how it relates to Jesus and, uh, and his sacrifice. But there are some events in here that are still yet to transpire. But that's not exclusively how it's meant to be read because I believe, like I mentioned a minute ago, that this is revealing to us how we live in victory. So through some mischievous uh, kind of misdirection this morning, I actually kind of wove that first point of the sermon into this long intro, and that is this. How do we achieve victory by the blood of the Lamb? It happens through faith, like we read in Romans 3, right? Uh, it says there that people are made right with God when they believe, when they believe. So how do you claim the blood of the Lamb? You believe in the sacrifice of Jesus. You believe in his payment of our debt. You believe in his victory over death, hell, and the grave. So really, we only have this second point that we need to deal with this morning, and that is our testimony. So what does this mean, testimony? Uh, put that verse back up there if you would. The next, the next slide, I think. Uh, there it is, yeah. They defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. There's not really any other context except for this one word, testimony. So I needed to look at that word and I needed to make sure that I understood what the Greek was trying to get at with this phrase, testimony. And, and the phrase is marturia, marturia. And like so many Greek words, it, it encompasses more than just one meaning of testimony. Um, and I think what might even be more helpful for us is today if we kind of marry that term, testimony, with the term witness, because it works a little bit better in English. And here's why. Witness doesn't really refer to just the words being spoken. It also refers to the character of the person speaking the words. Does that make sense? Let me give you a, a better example to break it down. It encompasses both the testifier and the testimony, okay? Um, in other words, my testimony isn't going to result in victory if I'm just speaking out something that I haven't really become in here. If my testimony isn't because of my proximity to Jesus and his blood alive in my life, then it, it won't be victory. Imagine this. And I, I almost hate using the American courtroom as an example, but it, it works here. In a murder trial, um, there's a person that takes the stand after about two days of the trial. And he begins to unload details that are very revealing and that change the nature of the case. Um, and, and everyone in the courtroom is like, wow, why did they hold this back so long? This would have been open and shut if we knew all this. But then, upon asking further questions, you find that the person wasn't actually connected to the crime at all, but he was up there after sitting in the courtroom for two days and learning all the details from all the other witnesses and, and now was just talking about his thoughts his theories, what he thought made sense or what he thought probably happened, right? 
there would be no second guessing. There'd be no patience. Immediately, the man would be, would be thrown out, right? There would be outrage and dispute and mistrial. And how could someone let this happen? What does this guy know? He's just, he's just any old person. Any old person could talk like that. Just make up stuff, right? Do you know that same incredulity and, and that same appall should apply when my testimony is out of balance? When I just give a verbal testimony and, you know, visible ticks on Sundays, but I have no depth or spiritual connection with Jesus during the days when I'm not in this room. I'm claiming to be a witness without enough experience with or connection to the situation that I wanna profess about. When the scripture refers to they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of, of their testimony, of their testimony, it did refer to this dogmatic clinging to the professing of the gospel. In other words, I know the gospel to be true and I'm gonna declare it and I'm gonna speak it out um, over my family, over my friends. But it also referred to a sold out, humble, intimate, saint of Christ being the one who was doing the professing. It's, it's, it's both. And we're shortchanging our victory if we're trying to just make it the word part. So all of this can be summed up real nicely in this phrase. The idea of testimony and witness applied not only to their words, but to their character. The idea of testimony, uh, it applies to their character as well as their words. It applies to their habit, the things that they did. And maybe I've prattled on enough about this. Um, but I, th I think that's, that's kind of where we, where, we where we land today is to this tough, you know, in your face kind of question of why am I not experiencing the victory of Jesus in my life? Why am I not experiencing his victory? Can I just um, put out there, I, I think there is a, there's a soft and kind beckoning <laughs> to abide with Jesus to witness the victory of Jesus in personal communion. And that from that place, from that place, find your victory. I want to pause, though, and remind you this. And it needs to be said. The converse of that statement is not true. Not abiding with Jesus is not the reason that you're not experiencing victory. He's not ghosting you because you haven't been spending time with him, right? But there is something to be said about we need to effort to the best of our ability to be authentic 
in our testimony to try and connect and honor Jesus with our personal life, with our actions, with our time, with our thoughts. That in that place, my witness becomes my character and not just what it looks like or what it sounds like. So how do we achieve victory? It's, it's, it's through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's through developing our testimony. That is an intimate relationship with Jesus and a profession of his gospel. Worked out through all aspects of our life. So this brings me to um, where we're going to kind of wrap it up today in the next few minutes. Probably one of my favorite admonitions of the saints of the early church and it was delivered in, in Romans 12 from Paul. So if you would, you can turn there with me. Romans chapter 12 um, and we're going we're gonna to start in verse 1. And so dear brothers and sisters I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Verse two says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Paul urges the believers, give your body to God. Give your bodies to God because of what he's done, because of his sacrifice. And then he invites them to participate, and this is such a beautiful turn of phrase. He invites them to participate in what started this victory. Sacrifice. For God, it was the sacrifice of his son, totally paying for our sins. But for us, it's to let my body become a living sacrifice. No more animal sacrifices. No, nothing else that's weird or off the beaten path now. It's me letting my body become a living and holy sacrifice. And that is how I worship him truly. That's what the scripture says. And then if that was maybe a little heady or a little hard to grip, to grip then verse two makes it a whole lot more practical. You want a couple of steps you can take? Well, first he says, don't copy the world. Don't, don't do, don't try to do or be like what the people who don't love Jesus do, right? Don't, don't conform to their way of behavior, but let your transformation come from God. Let your transformation come from that 
personal, intimate testimony that you are spending in relationship with God, answering that call to abide with Jesus, letting God transform you through that process, to transform me into a new person by changing the way that I think. Then it says you'll know what God's will for you is. You'll know what God's will for you is. And, and, and then I, I believe it's, it's angling it to then we will experience victory as we allow his spirit to transform our minds. We will conquer sin and we'll walk in the truth of his sacrifice. We'll walk in the comforting friendship of him, our Savior. So at the end of this rather, uh, you know, straightforward question of just how, how do we walk in victory? Um, I put forward that it's a rather straightforward answer. Walk with Jesus. <laughs> walk with Jesus. Prioritizing him above our flesh and our pride honoring his sacrifice and just communing with him, abiding with him. And from that place comes victory. We're about to respond to the word here in just a minute. And we're gonna read uh, Romans 12 one more time in a little different context. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't at least recognize this this morning. Because it, it occurred to me this week in my studies that this really is a question of, we understand salvation came through the sacrifice of Jesus. I put my faith in him and now I'm saved. And we want to know what's, what's the next step. How do I walk in victory? And my mind was drawn to Jesus' closing words to his disciples and, and what he urged them to do. In other words, could we look at the first happenings post Jesus' ascension as a key to maybe how do we actually walk this out, you know? Because it probably something clicked for them, and it did. And then I realized what today was, and today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the memorial of what Jesus told his disciples. What did he tell them to do? To go and wait, to not leave Jerusalem until the helper comes until the helper comes, right? And, and, and as he uh, describes this to them in Acts 1, Acts 2, sorry, they, they sit in the upper room and they're, they're, they're praying and they're worshiping. The way I look at that is they're doing what I'm preaching right here. They're communing with Jesus. They're abiding with Jesus and they're looking for what is next. They're looking for his good and perfect, pleasing will in their lives. And what happens on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit descends. And he inhabits each of those believers. And it is that presence of God that is transforming. I mean, in that moment, he transforms their languages. People all over the city begin hearing the word of God in their own language and they're drawn, right? But as they walk from that room, personally, the Holy Spirit transformed the believers. And he worked in their hearts as well. 
What I want to ask you guys to do is to close your eyes with me this morning and, and uh, here's how we're going to respond. I can, I can imagine that as I shared this morning, the Lord's probably already been working on some of you. Um, and, I, and I also just want to let you know that as I typed this out, my spirit was crushed, especially as I, as I wrote of the, the duality of speaking our testimony but not characterizing it. And I want to tell you that you're not alone in that. Me, standing here on the stage, I want to validate that as a struggle. That, that feeling of, man, I've been saying that I have a testimony, but I really, I have not lived that personal abiding with Jesus. I have not characterized that in my life. And I want to say too, it, it's okay because it's not easy to do that. The, the words that Paul used were not friendly language. The word he used was a living sacrifice, right? But it is possible. And it is something we can start today. Mm-hmm.